0: The Gist is an independent podcast, you know that, you value that, that's why you listen, and we are going to remain independent no matter what, but independence is worth it, but also comes at a cost. So we have a subscription service, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com to get The Gist ad free, or to get bonus episodes of interviews of The Gist, and a Trivia Night, there's also a level where you can commission a spiel as if you were a doge in Italy, or a raj, or anything that ends in a zh sound in one of the nations of the world where you commission humble artists to do your bidding. It's all available at subscribe.mikepesca.com. Consider it planting a flag for the very spirit of independence. It's Wednesday, May 24th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist, I'm Mike Pesca there is every indication that by the time you hear this, Ron DeSantis will have gone on something called Twitter Spaces and made his claim for the space known as 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Yes, the White House, and also, yes, Twitter Spaces. Why? Well, let us revisit the theory of the case, a theory that was once in ascendance. Ron DeSantis argued that he, Ron DeSantis, could deliver the Trump agenda without the Trump Messing it up. Republicans like all the things Trump promised, just that Trump didn't really deliver them and certainly now can't deliver them. Ron DeSantis said, I'm the guy who could. I'll give you those policies without the fights, without the bluster, without the nonsense, without the misspelled tweets. I'll just give you the agenda. With Ron, you get the culture wars, you get the owning of the libs. You get the standing up for the traditional blah-de-blah, but paired with ability and competence and a track record. Because Republicans don't believe, Ron DeSantis and his one-time leading status in the polls would indicate, Republicans don't believe that Trump can do the things. They know he can say the things. You can't stop him from saying the things. But... He'll just keep saying the things like the election was stolen, which is a very unpopular thing to say. So unpopular, it stops him from getting the opportunity to do the things. Now, did this theory become wrong since December of 2022 and January of 2023? Is it just May of 2023? I mean, back then, DeSantis was riding high. He did very well in his election, re-election for Florida governor, and Trump got shellacked It was data point after data point that Trump and an association with Trump was the road to electoral ruin. Election deniers were falling left and right. If Trump picked you to run for Senate, it was more likely than not that you were going to lose. It was guaranteed that you would underperform other senators who just had the R next to their name as opposed to the MAGA that goes along with it. A Trump presidential announcement, I mean, that happened and it was small and lame and okay, it wasn't Twitter spaces lame, but it was you know nothing great. And this new guy, this DeSantis fellow, I mean, they seem to like him in Florida, seems to have some spring in his step. And then after some examination, kind of the haphazard folk MRI that comes with media scrutiny, that springy step was revealed to contain a hitch in the Giddy app. DeSantis, weird, brittle. DeSantis, weirdly obsessed with Disney. So does this mean that the theory of the case as articulated just a few months ago, that theory exploded? Or did voters, Republican voters, just reconsider the proposition that Ron was the one to best don? These days, people are asking of, hey, you get the competence without the Trump when you vote DeSantis. People are asking, how competent is DeSantis? Not as competent as Bob Iger, it would seem. And if it's a choice between questionably competent, Ron, and genuinely compelling Don, they want Don. Also, competent Trump, if DeSantis is the competent Trump, it's kind of an oxymoron. I mean, competence that wasn't really the trump selling point that wasn't the defining trait with trump you get wild you get incautious no one ever said competent this is like saying i am the careful kamikaze i shall be the generous narcissist that trump never could be we all say or republicans say but i think we all say it that we want accomplishments But really, I think any garden variety Republican would have given them the tax cuts and the Supreme Court justices, and I think I just named almost all the accomplishments of the Trump administration. Maybe the Republicans don't actually want a clean knockout of the Democrats in an election or even while in office. They want a 15-round bloodbath where the other guy is staggering and losing teeth and having more cognitive decline than seems in evidence presently. Seems more entertaining, doesn't it? DeSantis is smug, he looks like the cat who caught the canary, Trump's the cat who toys with his prey, torturing it for sport, hour after hour, and that, I think, may be the speed of the current Republican Party. Now, don't listen to me. I'm someone who's never voted Republican in a presidential election, ever. But I do think, when we examine the man who's throwing his hat in the Twitter space, when we examine the man who's leading in the polls, I think we can all conclude that the Vivek Ramaswamy lane is wide open. On the show today, how dangerous is Florida? The NAACP is warning black citizens away. But first, law professor Kermit Roosevelt is author of The Nation That Never Was, Reconstructing America's Story. Yesterday, he came on to talk about redefining America with a new starting date after the important amendments to the Constitution were added after the Civil War. A fine idea. In this half of the interview, I talk about isn't even possible to have a self-identification as a nation if you identify with ideas or dates as opposed to your fellow citizens. Kermit Roosevelt up next. Kermit Roosevelt is a law professor at the University of Pennsylvania. He's author of The Nation That Never Was, Reconstructing America's Story. And yesterday, I talked a little bit about the idea and the challenge of a multi-ethnic democracy. So if you look at countries that are successful, that aren't going through what the United States is going through, which is, uh, you know, let's generally call it soul-searching, countries where their identity is coherent, the Norwegians, the Serbs, probably the Russians... One of the reasons they have a coherent identity is that those designations aren't just countries, they are a people. And if you say to the Norwegians, what about all these issues tearing you apart? They might say, yes, but we're Norwegians after all. We are the people of Norway, we're united in the fact of our Norwegianness, same thing with New Zealand, let's say, yes, we know we have the Maori population, but we're New Zealanders, they're New Zealanders. It means something. it means something coherent. America lacks that. Don't you think so?
1: Yeah, um, I think that's true you know we we were sort of talking about this before. Um, and I, you know, I think one of the things that's happening is we used to tell ourselves, hey, look, we're diverse, we're a melting pot, we don't have any racial identity as Americans. Um, we just believe in these ideals and our constitution is our sacred text and we don't have a dominant religion and that brings us all together. And it was easy for white Christians to say those things while white Christians were clearly in control of the country. And now it's getting harder. Because they're seeing their control slip and they don't like that feeling. Mm. And yeah, I mean, it's just true. I think it's a lot harder for diverse countries to stay together and have a national identity. And, you know, sometimes they don't stay together. Um, I don't think that we're going to split like that because, just because of the way our population is set up geographically. But I, I do think like we're seeing tension because of it.
0: Where are the loudest critics who are gaining a foothold in arguing against the uh, standard story? Where where do they go wrong? Where are their excesses?
1: Where are their excesses? Well, in terms of history, I think the, the claim that got the most pushback from the 1619 project and that people have really focused on is this idea that the revolution was fought to preserve slavery, mm-hmm. um, which is something that I looked into a lot. And, you know, um, the answer there, I think, is sort of?
0: Yeah. Well, the 1619 Project is currently presented also conveys sort of. They changed the original text and they say, yeah.
1: They did, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, if you look at what's going on, there's this Somerset decision where Lord Mansfield says slavery can't exist in England without positive law. And actually, the supporters of slavery try to get positive law authorizing it, and Parliament says no. So there is this sort of anti-slavery sentiment there? And then how is that decision received? Well, in the West Indies, people complain about it a lot. So there's no movement for independence there, but they're like, this is terrible, right? You're not recognizing our slave property and you really should. In the colonies, they don't talk about it as much. And then the question is why and what does that mean? And the answer, I think, is the colonies are trying to come together. So, they're looking for themes that will unify them in opposition to England. And taxation without representation is a theme that all the colonies can subscribe to and it brings them together. But you're not respecting slavery is not a theme that will bring them together because there is abolitionist sentiment even before the revolution, particularly, of course, in the northern colonies. Um, But so the idea that this is a war for slavery is not a good sell politically in the North. It's not a good sell internationally. And so being rational people and understanding propaganda, the colonies don't play that up. But concern about respect for slavery is probably there to some extent in the minds of some of the Southerners. Because they certainly are concerned a lot about it once they get independence and once you start talking about what the national government under the constitution is going to look like, they're very concerned about the national government interfering with slavery. So seems reasonable to think they had some kind of similar concerns after the Somerset mm. decision.
0: But, but your whole book is in a way an answer to the 1619
1: Project,
0: not just that part, but they said let us not consider 1787 the founding of the country. Uh, You heard that and you said, oh, okay, I'm listening. And then they said, let us consider 1619 the founding because that's when the first African-Americans became African-Americans, the first people came from Africa. And you're like, no, not not 1619, not the best place to start. And you have a counter proposal, 1868.
1: Yeah, so 1619, it doesn't make any sense as a founding of America. I mean, it makes sense as the introduction of slavery, sure. And then slavery explains an enormous amount of American history. And this is something that, you know, I think we really haven't come to terms with, how much slavery drives American history. So I fully agree with the 1619 Project in that sense. Um, You know, they themselves say, well, it's a metaphorical founding, because obviously the American nation doesn't come into being in 1619. And if you do want to say that, then it does sound like kind of a negative view of America. You're like, slavery is the essence of America, so 1619 is when America starts. I want to say abolition is the essence of America, right? Equality is the essence of America, and we can find a moment when that becomes our higher law, and that's 1868.
0: Have you gotten pushback, feedback, any uh, problems from taking on the 1619 Project? Uh,
1: No, I mean, I'm a big fan of the 1619 Project. I would say I am on the side of the 1619 Project. I read the 1619 Project not as a condemnation of America, but as basically a version of the standard story, honestly, where the the claim is we have these ideals and we don't live up to them and we should live up to them and here's what we should be doing better. And Mm -hmm. in some sense, I think of myself as more radical, right? Because what I'm saying is 1776 America does not have those ideals, right? 1787 America does not have those ideals. Some people do right? Some abolitionists do. But that is not what the Declaration of Independence is saying. That is not what the 1787 Constitution is saying. If you want to see those ideals sort of take center stage and drive the nation forward, that's 1863, that's 1868. So, in some ways, I I would say I'm more radical than 1619. Right. But your
0: what's driving you is this notion that we are um we are rapidly losing a sense of a shared identity. And that's a problem. I don't know how many, I don't want to speak for Nicole Hannah Jones or anyone else, but I don't know how much they think that's a problem, but you think that's a problem. Yeah, this I is do think part I, of your so, patriotism. I
1: do think that's a problem. That's part of my patriotism. I consider this a patriotic project. Um Every year at the end of my constitutional law course, I like give my students a little inspirational talk, and it's changed quite a lot over the past five years or so. Um, and you know what I'm telling them now is, if you feel that the system is unjust and we need radical change, don't let anyone else tell you that you're not American and you're not patriotic. And also don't you feel that you're disconnected from America because that desire for radical change and that critique of America is deeply American. And your pep talk changed because the sentiments of University of Pennsylvania law students have changed? Well, in part because of that and, you know, in part my sentiments have changed. So, you know, I went into constitutional law teaching with the sort of rah-rah, our constitution is great and has served us well for over 200 years. And then I started thinking, actually, there are features of the constitution that don't serve us well, and it used to be much worse. And I really don't think it worked for over 200 years. I think it failed and broke in the civil war. Um, But then the other thing that I wanted to say was, I think the 1619 Project is deeply patriotic too. I mean, Anyone who reads the introductory essay, Nicole Hannah-Jones' introductory essay about the American flag and how she used to feel like it didn't belong to her and now she does and now she understands that she's, you know, the most American of all, um, that's, like, super patriotic. I don't know how anyone could read that and think that's not patriotic.
0: Um, I've seen and listened to interviews you've done where you said, well, okay the interviewer says, these are great ideas. How do we get them to take hold? And you're, perhaps because you're an educator, your answer is, we could do it through
1: the classrooms. Tell me about that. Yeah. So how do we get the standard story of America? Well, we hear it in political rhetoric, certainly. So, you know, the presidents are out there on the 4th of July saying, hey, this is when our nation was born and here are our values and so on. But the reason that that resonates with people is we also get it in school growing up it's the narrative of american history that we learn from a very early age and that can change and it has changed one really interesting thing is to look at how american history has been taught over the decades and it wouldn't take much to just sort of shift the focus a bit And we'll be like, hey, there were these people who came here in the 17th century, and then there was this rebellion in the 18th century. Um, But where we really should start thinking about America, where our modern values come from, is the Civil War and Reconstruction. And, you know, you just shift the focus so Reconstruction becomes more prominent, the founding becomes less prominent. And what I say is, like, you don't need to tear down the Washington Monument. I would never recommend that. I think that's a crazy recommendation, but you can Mm -hmm. get to a moment where school children are walking around Washington, um, Washington, D.C., and they're like, hey, the Lincoln Memorial, there's the father of our country, Jefferson, Washington, what do we have these big things for, right? That's really not as important. How strange. And when that's the reaction, then the political rhetoric will also follow, I think, because that's what's going to be effective. That's what's going to tap into the way that people understand America now. Um, And the presidents will be talking much more about the Civil War and the sacrifices that we Americans have made for equality. Should we tear down the Jefferson Memorial? Well, honestly, I might do that. I mean, (laughs) Jefferson... It is in Virginia, so they have a say over that, and it was pretty important to that. Well, state. that's true. I mean, so Jefferson starts out sort of idealistic, and you know, and he criticizes slavery in various ways. In his personal life, he's terrible. He enslaves his own children. Um, he never frees Sally Hemings. He frees some of his children on his death, but that's about as far as he goes. And then politically, he gets worse. He gets more pro-slavery. So he really never does much to act on those early anti-slavery expressions that he has. Um, So I'm just not a fan of Jefferson. So do you just hope that your
0: ideas take hold or have you actually worked with textbook authors or I don't know, is there a The Nation That Never Was baby series book, like the anti-racism baby series book on its way? Well, not
1: yet. So I haven't worked with textbook authors. I'm kind of interested in that. Um, I was going to try to write, a document-based question for the AP exam. I don't know how you Mm -hmm. go about doing that, but I was going to be like, hey, take a look at the Declaration of Independence and the Gettysburg Address and take a look at some of these Southern secession letters and tell me, which side do you think the Declaration supports in the Civil War? Because I think I find that a very powerful point for people. So they're like, oh, the Gettysburg Address, Lincoln says he's fighting for the Declaration of Independence. Of course it supports the Union. Um, And then You ask them, well, so which side is declaring their independence, right? Which side is saying we no longer consent to your authority and governments get their authority from the consent of the governed, you know, which side is doing all of that? And then people sort of rethink it.
0: Is there a succinct phrase for this ideology, like 1619 project or anti-racism?
1: Well, you know, you could say it's the 1863 project.
0: Um, Oh, 63 Gettysburg. Yeah.
1: Gettysburg address emancipation proclamation. That's when the ideals come out. So it's like 1776.
0: See, I think you open yourself if to, to, you know, I'll give you my branding advice. I think you open yourself up to the criticism to those were just words. It wasn't action until 1868. It was an actual force of law. Okay. Yeah. So we'll call it reconstructing America's story. I'm enjoying this spitball. Yeah. yeah. Lastly, since I have you, you're a constitutional scholar. You've talked about, say, term limits on Supreme Court justices. There have been a raft of recent revelations about different Supreme Court justices getting benefits, payments uh, in kind, trips. There have been a few of these. How much of a crisis do you think it is that... Supreme Court justices such as Clarence Thomas received benefits from rich donors just because they like Clarence Thomas?
1: Well, I think it's bad. Um, you know, I don't know if that's a crisis. It certainly looks bad. Um, yeah. To some extent, my reaction is look, Thomas has very strong views, and it's not like he's being bribed to change his views. You know, I don't think you're getting decisions that you wouldn't get because he's getting these benefits. On the other hand, um, I do think there's something to the idea that people absorb ideas from the sort of informational ecosystem that they're in. And like the conservatives were very Mm -hmm. worried about this with Justice Kennedy. They're like, wow, you know, if Kennedy gets exposed to progressives, he gets these crazy pro-gay rights ideas and we need to sort of wall him off. And that's kind of what the... Patronage here is doing. You know, it's like, hey, Thomas, you can go on these great vacations where you'll be in a bubble with lots of conservative ideologues. And certainly it prevents him from being exposed to ideas that might change his mind, yeah. so I, I think it doesn't it's it doesn't have no effect, yeah. And I don't know if you
0: read the recent New York Times story, but it was about Scalia Law School and how. Uh, some of the conservative justices have taken the maximum teaching stipend, which is $30,000. It struck me as, A, not surprising. I, I suppose maybe this, if readers didn't know um, the how George Mason's School of Law has positioned itself, that's instructive. But in terms of a scandal or something to worry about, I don't know. You, you're at University of Pennsylvania. I'm sure you've had Supreme Court justices teach a class and offer them, and maybe they've accepted a stipend. How How worried should we be about this sort of thing?
1: Well, you know, it's the same thing. Like, I find it hard to imagine that it has any effect on their decisions, which is kind of the bottom line thing that you'd be worried about. But I do think it it just sort of looks bad when, for instance, a justice is teaching a class with some professor, and then at the same time the professor is submitting a brief. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, in terms of appearances, that's the sort of thing... Justice Souter would sure never have done. I could tell you that. Like, Mm -hmm. there are justices who try to hold themselves to higher standards than that. And I kind of feel like if you're going to be on the Supreme Court, then maybe you should be willing to sacrifice the super yacht vacation. You Did you clerk for Souter? I did clerk for Justice Souter. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So do you know if any of the other uh, three Democratic appointed justices on the court have taught classes with anyone they submitted briefs with uh who submitted briefs
1: um i don't know and you know i mean i wouldn't want to stake my life on the idea that there's a big distinction between progressives and the conservatives here because generally like elite washington it's pretty chummy and you get positions of power and people want to give you things right that that happens and and if you stick to the rules
0: especially if you're in charge of making the rules you know maybe your figures shouldn't be criticized Especially when you compare yourself to what you're worth on the open market in the private sector.
1: Yeah. The big problem with the Supreme Court, though, is that it's been captured by a party that represents a minority of the American people. Um, And that happens because Supreme Court appointments are sort of random and sort of strategic. And the way that the system is set up, you can have like a president who loses the popular vote, nominate someone who's then confirmed by a Senate that represents a minority of the American people. And we actually have three justices on the court now who fit that description. Yeah.
0: Well, captured's is a strong word, but that certainly is the dynamic. Then again, you could argue if the uh, Republicans have some great elections, it won't be the minority of the American people who they represent. So retroactively, was the process fair?
1: Um, if they have some great elections, um, you know, if they get a majority of the votes. So if they if they get a majority of the popular vote for president that would strengthen their case, I think. Um, Part of it depends on who's allowed to vote and how easy it is for different people to vote, though. So to the extent that this Supreme Court is gutting the Voting Rights Act and making voter suppression easier, um, I feel like maybe that's part of the problem. How big a part? Well, I think it's big. I mean, I think the Voting Rights Act was so you know we, we, you were saying before maybe we don't really become a multiracial democracy until the voting rights act of 1965 and that's not mm-hmm. entirely true because we had eight years of reconstruction maybe where you know black voter registration in the south looked really good yeah. um, and then it goes down to almost zero right and we're definitely not a multiracial democracy in like 1920 um, but the voting rights act of 1965 is hugely important and i think it's symbolically and practically, hugely important, that this Supreme Court has taken it down. So, I teach my constitutional law course in sort of historical eras, and we talk about Reconstruction, and then we talk about Redemption, and we talk about the second Reconstruction, which is the Civil Rights era, with the Voting Rights Act and the Warren Court. And then, what do you call the modern era? Well, I used to call it the new federalism because I was like, aha, suddenly Mm -hmm. the justices care about states' rights. But as people always say, right, states' rights to do what exactly? And when you look at how the states are using the liberty that the Supreme Court is giving them, I say this is the second redemption. What's going on now is a reaction to the second Reconstruction and the civil rights era. And where the Supreme Court is really pushing back is against the Reconstruction amendments,
0: Kermit Roosevelt is a professor of constitutional law at the University of Pennsylvania and an author, most recently, of The Nation That Never Was, Reconstructing America's Story. Professor Roosevelt, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. And now the spiel, the NAACP has issued a travel advisory for anyone considering entering the third most populous state in the Union. Under the headline Florida, Unsafe for Black Americans, the NAACP reasons quote, Florida is openly hostile toward African Americans, people of color, and LGBTQ individuals before traveling to Florida. Please understand that the state of Florida devalues and marginalizes the contributions of and challenges faced by African Americans. Americans and other communities of color. The advisory, I love I love reading this advisory, it also goes on to say, in part under its current governor, the state of Florida has engaged in an all-out attack on black Americans, accurate black history, voting rights, members of the LGBTQ+ community, immigrants, women's reproductive rights and free speech while simultaneously embracing a culture of fear, of bullying and intimidation. The NAACP president Derek Johnson was asked on CBS this morning, why do you believe that Florida is so
2: hostile to black Americans? Here's his response. But it's been demonstrated by the governor's action and the policies that have been advanced. And so we want to make sure the rest of America understand the hostility in which he is governing uh, in his quest to become president.
0: The press release and official statements talk extensively about the curriculum changes in public schools around black history and the AP test, describing these efforts as, quote, aggressive attempts to erase black history. And the NAACP also talks about restricting diversity, equity and inclusion programs. It says, please be advised that the state of Florida does not welcome the contributions of African-Americans and people of color. And this was all before... Our national attention was riveted on the fact that an Amanda Gorman poem was moved from one shelf in the library to another. And don't get me wrong, it was stupid that it was moved at all, but it was kind of stupid that we had to know about it. But you know, there is a case that Florida is dangerous for black people. No joke. More dangerous than the world in general and America in general. Well, I don't know about the world in general, certainly America in general. And the case would go like this, stand your ground laws. Stand your ground laws are racially discriminatory. The Urban Institute found that in Florida, the innovator in the stand your ground space, when the shooter is white and the victim is black, stand your ground works i.e. the shooter is not convicted, it works 34% of the time, white shooter, black victim. Reverse the races, black shooter, white victim, it works 3% of the time. That is stark. Look at incarceration. On a national level, according to the Sentencing Project, black people are incarcerated at a rate of 1,240 per 100,000. In Florida, it's 1,400, so higher than the national average. However, it should be noted that there are many other states without NAACP advisories, i.e. all of them, that have much higher rates of incarceration. California, which doesn't pick fights over the AP and therefore isn't criticized by the NAACP, does incarcerate black people at a rate of over 1,600 per 100,000. In other areas, black Floridians or black people in Florida fare better than black people in the United States overall take lifespan. The national lifespan for black people is 75 years or was as of the latest uh, figures I have uh, circa 2018. So 75 years in the United States, 76.1 in Florida. And the gap in lifespan between black people and white people in the United States overall, 3.6 years. In Florida, 3.2. Eight years. Not great, not worse. Those lifespan figures, by the way, predate COVID, and Florida protected its black citizens better than many states, states which are in the NAACP's good graces. Florida protected its black people better than the country overall. The NAACP is headquartered in Maryland. The population of Maryland is 29% black, COVID deaths, 35% of COVID deaths in the state of Maryland were of black people. New York, 14% African American overall population, 23% of COVID deaths in New York were of its black population. But Florida has a black population of 15% and COVID deaths were only 16%. The NAACP has previously put the state of Missouri on its advisory list. It's unclear what, if any, effect that had. Then there was this NAACP advisory from October of 2017.
1: American Airlines is the focus of an unusual travel advisory. The NAACP is telling African Americans to be careful when flying one of the biggest airlines in the United States. It's based on complaints from African American passengers.
0: There were four incidents of discrimination alleged against American Airlines, and the airlines took them seriously. They took seriously the potential drop-off in business, which didn't materialize. And a few months after the advisory, President Derek Johnson of the NAACP met with American Airlines officials and announced they were lifting the advisory. Now those dynamics, a target who fears whether the NAACP issues an advisory or doesn't, those dynamics are not in play in Florida. Here is Johnson explaining how the advisory was motivated by more than Florida's alleged devaluing and marginalizing of just the Black community.
2: Well, first of all, this was informed by the community that who are members in the state of Florida. This has been informed by other Black institutions that we are aligned with. Uh, And they're saying that we have to address the problem of direct racial attacks from this governor in a way in which we don't abandon the citizens of Florida, in a way in which we don't allow to go unaddressed. And so what came out of this was the state Conference of Florida making a decision that it was a problem and something needed to get done, that the members of our national board began to deliberate to determine what was the best approach. And at the end of the day, this was this struck the right balance to ensure that if individuals or organizations had to go to Florida, to work with local community groups in, w- within African community so we can address this question while at the exact same time, if you don't have to go to Florida, don't go. Huh. What he has done at Disney has, is, is atrocious in his way to attack the LGBT community. Disney, interesting point. No one has to go to
0: Disney. By the way, the Boston Celtics did have to go to Miami, and I hope Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum did check in with the local NAACP affiliates and community groups before deciding how to guard the high pick and roll, and, you know, just checked in for self-care in general. But, let's say you're a black family and you give heed to the NAACP advisory, but you're excited to go to Disneyland. You have a trip to Disneyland planned. But you're also aware that in the stupid fight picked by Ron DeSantis, Disney is a very high profile DeSantis antagonist. Should the family forego its travels? Who is helped by foregoing their travels? Is Disney helped? Certainly not. Is the family helped? I don't see how. Are black Americans in general helped? I think not. This is why the advisory might not actually convince anyone to do anything except dislike Ron DeSantis more than they do. Ron DeSantis has called this advisory a stunt. Here is how Derek Johnson responded.
2: But was it a stunt to block children's experience to learn uh, history holistically? Yes. Was it a stunt for him to pursue a course of action to target the LGBT community? Yes. Everything he's done is a stunt.
0: Okay, he's acknowledging it is a stunt, and therefore, they meet stunt with stunt, because the NAACP can certainly sink down to the level of the government of Florida. DeSantis got attention? They could get attention. Great works out for everybody, except it really works out for nobody. The NAACP is not in the business of issuing genuine advisories that Black Americans should heed lest they expose themselves to risks and danger. They're not the State Department, they don't have a Consumer Protection Bureau finding loose screws on swing sets, they're an advocacy organization trying to poke a thumb in the eye of a political enemy whose policies are anathema to theirs. I am not going to try to convince you that the NAACP has their overall credibility at stake, that they sold out their moral standing. I'm not going to be so grand. I know historically the NAACP constantly engages in actions that seem pretty confrontational at the time, and then history looks back at them as not so radical at all. I'm not going to say the stakes are that dire, because I don't want to commit the sin of over-dramatization. But it does seem like just another press release, just another news item where the only reasonable reaction is to shrug it off. And I think everyone will. Safety advisory? A moral American might say, oh, what is this about? I care about my my family's safety or my neighbor's safety if they're African American. Oh, it's really just the usual culture war piffle that we're all aware of. And we know who Ron DeSantis is. And even if we don't like him even if we know that he is no friend to civil liberties, even if he is not a scholar, perhaps not a gentleman, we know what to do with that information. I guess we also now know who the NAACP is, who they're trying to be. Just another in a long line of advocacy groups trying to change the DEFCON, desperately trying to get some attention by evoking safety and danger about issues that don't quite fit that bill. That's it for today's show. Corey Warr is the producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is The Gist senior producer. Michelle Pesca issues all advisories on behalf of Peach Fish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Ooproo, Goproo, Duproo, and thanks for listening.